Ski, Shoot, Repeat, a biathlon podcast, hosted by Lizzie Boyle. Episode 10. Snow Day. At first, the snow is six-sided, newly formed flakes. After 48 hours, the flakes break down, their outlines blur. By the tenth day, the snow is a grainy crystal that becomes compacted after two months. After two years, it enters the transitional stage between snow and fern. After four years, it's transformed into a large, blocky glacial crystal. It wouldn't survive more than three years here on Gela Alta. By that time, the glacier would push it out to sea. There it would break up and float outward to melt, disperse and be absorbed by the sea. And then someday, it would rise up as newly formed snow. That quote is from Peter Herg's book, Miss Miller's Feeling for Snow or Miss Miller's Sense of Snow. And it tells us that this week's episode is all about snow, where it comes from, and more importantly, what it means. Somewhere above us, water vapour crystallises into ice, from vapour to ice without being a liquid in between. It gathers more water vapour from the surrounding air into a pellet or flake of snow. It descends. For snow to form, you need moisture in the atmosphere and low temperatures. Cold, dry places won't see snow, nor will hot, wet ones. Elevation, terrain, vegetation, wind and weather can all affect the type of snow you get and what you can do with it. Our experiences of snow are very different. Once in London, we met an Australian woman in her early 20s. A rich, thick snow was falling and settling on the streets. She had never seen snow before and didn't know what to do. We'd taught her to crunch together compact snowballs, to roll and build a full-height snowman, to give herself to the snow and become an angel. We exchanged numbers and shared pictures of each other in the snow. We never communicated again. Those sorts of encounters are fleeting, ephemeral. The British experience of snow is of something that may or may not come and definitely won't stay. Other countries and cultures have different experiences, and that's what this week's episode is all about. We'll have some poetry, some literature, a few film and TV references, and maybe a tiny bit of science. The one thing that will be missing from this week's biathlon podcast is any biathlon, but I'll make up for this in the next one, which will be an all-biathlon-and-nothing-else preview of the World Championships, which start in Oberhof on the 9th February. So if you're here for biathlon, switch off now, Go and listen to the Penalty Loop podcast or the Bal de Pioche podcast. Otherwise, sit back and let's drift together. We'll begin with some poetry. This is Snowflakes by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Out of the bosom of the air, out of the cloud folds of her garments shaken, over the woodlands brown and bare, over the harvest fields forsaken, silent and soft and slow descends the snow. Even as our cloudy fancies take suddenly shape in some divine expression, even as the troubled heart doth make in the white countenance confession, the troubled sky reveals the grief it feels. This is the poem of the air, slowly in silent syllables recorded. This is the secret of despair, long in its cloudy bosom hoarded, now whispered and revealed to wood and field. Longfellow's language of snow is tragic. It's troubled, grieving, despairing. It is a winter of tears over a dead or dying land. The poem was written in 1863, 
two years after the death of Longfellow's wife Frances in a fire at their home. Longfellow had tried to put out the fire and save Francis, and was badly burned himself in the incident. Grief was perpetual from that moment. He worried that he would be sent to an asylum, and used laudanum and ether to try to shut down his feelings. Even sixteen years later the wounds were still fresh. In a poem entitled The Cross of Snow, he revisits snow and writes, There is a mountain in the distant west, that sun-defying in its deep ravines, displays a cross of snow upon its side. Such is the cross I wear upon my breast, these eighteen years, through all the changing scenes and seasons, changeless since the day she died. Longfellow has a personal relationship with snow. He grew up in Maine and lived much of his life in Massachusetts, and he used snow as an image of something universal, this shower of grief, and something eternal, this cross that is changeless forever. Longfellow was also a keen student of Norse mythology, which has come up before in episodes of this podcast. So if you like, he was very northern in his attitudes towards snow. What do I mean by this? Well, the North is seen as a cold frontier land. This holds true in literature and mythologies from Europe, North America and Japan. We can see it even today. Think about the North in Game of Thrones. There's the North where the Stark family lives, which is a cold, muddy place where snows sometimes come and when they do, they linger. But the true North is the forbidding and hostile landscape north of the Wall, a land of permanent ice and snow, of wildlings and the undead. It's also a place that people go on some sort of personal quest. Jon Snow, note the use of snow as a surname meaning illegitimate, Jon Snow goes north of the Wall feeling it is his duty, but it's what makes him into who he is. Go back in time, Dr. Victor Frankenstein and his creation have a long chase across Arctic wastelands, a chase across a landscape where Victor believes the monster can no longer harm his family or his friends. These quests and narratives become caught up in historical fact too. We think of the race between Scott and Amundsen to reach the South Pole, the tragedy of Scott, his heroism in the face of certain doom. In his diary he wrote, Had we lived, I should have had a tale to tell of the hardihood, endurance and courage of my companions, which would have stirred the heart of every Englishman. These rough notes and our dead bodies must tell the tale. Scott also described the landscape. The eternal silence of the great white desert. Cloudy columns of snowdrift advancing from the south. Pale yellow wraiths heralding the coming storm, blotting out one by one the sharp-cut lines of the land. The great white desert is seen as lifeless. This is a common theme. There is simply nothing there but snow and ice. Nothing can live, nothing can thrive. It's a hostile environment, which only the hardiest of heroic adventurers can survive, and not even all of them. This has become the theme of any winter segment on, an, on a nature documentary too. This polar landscape is brutal and unforgiving. We've seen the narrative of the lonely Arctic polar bear and studied the communal hardships of the Antarctic penguins. We know that this is tough. And yet, life persists. Around 13 million people live in the Arctic North, spread across Alaska, Canada, Greenland, Iceland, Scandinavia and northern Russia. These include around 40 different indigenous groups, with strong connections to the land, distinct languages and cultures, and traditional economic activities based around herding, hunting and fishing. It's easy and lazy to cast these lifestyles as somehow primitive, but human social adaptation is an incredible thing. 
the Sami of Northern Scandinavia, are a group of peoples with a number of different backstories, different languages and different ways of life, but seen as a common grouping. As far back as the 16th century, the Sami were expert weavers, trading their fabrics with southern nations through land and sea-based trade routes. They were also excellent boat builders, whose work helped propel the Scandinavian nations across oceans. Modern life, industrialisation and technology have all arrived to have impacts on these peoples. Whether it's increasing urbanisation, alienation from the land, new types of jobs, or the use of GPS to navigate the landscape. Watch something like Fargo, the movie or the TV show, to see this coming together of the barren, white, rural landscapes of Minnesota with the jarring urban world of crime and murder. But I was talking about life, not death. The Sami, along with many other indigenous groups, see the landscape as life. No trip to the outdoors is wasted, whether it's herding, fishing or foraging. Freezing, salting, drying and fermentation are all methods of food preservation which help the finds go further through time. When you see that landscape every day, it's the landscape you know, and it's the practices of generations which enable you to thrive and survive in it. Inuit hunters can navigate a seemingly featureless landscape by observing which direction the wind is drifting the snow. Sami reindeer herders constantly monitor changes in snow conditions, so their herds can find areas to graze in a variety of snow types and snow depths. Nature itself has responses, the adaptation in colour of the arctic fox, the hibernation of mammals, the migration of many birds. You and I don't see that landscape every day, so we're not adapted for it. We have different experiences of snow and ice. We know the impermanent, occasional visitor called snow, not the long timescape of snow and ice that we find so weird and so exotic. You and I probably also don't see winter as the enabler of spring. If we're urban and western, then we probably lament winter, in that it's dark and cold and misty. But without the snow and the frost, we wouldn't have new seeds and new pollen for the cycle of life to begin again. We have become disconnected from these cycles in our centrally heated, electrically lit towns and cities. We grow our tomatoes all year round. We expect strawberries on the shelves in winter. It is no wonder that we find these other worlds strange and daunting. Perhaps it's on us to reconnect. This episode feels like it's been quite sad so far, and that wasn't intentional. So let's talk a bit about the experience of snow away from those polar extremes. Here in the UK, for instance, we get a handful of days of snow each year, and we always act surprised. Car drivers in the French Alps all own snow chains. Those in the UK, not so much. We wear the wrong shoes, the wrong clothes, we slip and slide on uncleared pavements, and we lament our lack of preparedness every time. When will we ever learn? Sometimes we get the magic of deep, lush snowfall. Back in the late 2000s, a deep snow fell across London. All public transport was shut down, something that was announced the day before to much chagrin. But on the day, it was amazing. No one could go anywhere. The roads were clear for those who really needed them, and the parks were full of people, playing, building, creating. We saw an entire football team of snowmen. We built a snowhenge. It was an excuse to play, and yet it still carried those contradictory feelings. It's about play and joy, but it's also about danger and risk. Play in the snow, but don't walk on the ice. Snow here in the UK is fleeting and transient. It's temporary. Perhaps the best summary of this is the book The Snowman by Raymond Briggs. Written in 1978, it was turned into an animation in 1982. A young boy, James, 
wakes up on a snowy day and builds a life-size snowman. The snowman comes to life and the two play, travel, fly to the North Pole and meet Father Christmas. The following morning, the snow has melted and James's friend has gone. Cut to Japan. The word Yuki means snow and is often used in girls' names to suggest purity or beauty or included in their names if they have winter birth dates. But the word Yuki is also related to the word Go, so we're reminded of the temporary nature, not just of snow, but of life and the things within it. Japanese culture also has an aesthetic around wabi and sabi, which relate to a kind of sadness in the face of something that will inevitably end. Japanese cherry blossom trees only flower for a few days. They're celebrated as incredibly beautiful, but with an undercurrent of sorrow and nostalgia that they will inevitably fall. The temporariness of snow is what gives winter its resonance. The notion of a white Christmas is strongly linked to the notion of a family Christmas and to the heavy duty marketing of the Christmas season deployed by the likes of Coca-Cola. The song White Christmas remains one of the biggest selling of all time, the centerpiece of several movies and stage musicals and the winner of an Academy Award. Released at Christmas 1941, shortly after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, it became an important emotional connector for American soldiers posted overseas in World War II. The song masks a personal sadness too. Composer Irving Berlin and his wife Ellen would spend their Christmas days visiting the grave of their baby son, also called Irving, who had died in 1928 at just one month old. More sadness. Sorry. Recent years have seen efforts to extend the marketing of winter. The Danish concept of hugge, which literally no one in the UK, including me, knows how to pronounce, has become an excuse to wear comfy sweaters and fluffy slippers year-round. Having a series of lockdowns with a lot of staying at home helped sustain that trend, and there are still some huggy diehards who work from home but only dress for work from the waist up, so they look the part on team's calls. The other concept to mention here is the adoption of snowflake as an insult in recent years, usually used by people on the political right to insult people on the political left. In his 1996 book Fight Club, Chuck Balaniuk uses the phrase you are not special, you are not a beautiful and unique snowflake. And it was adopted initially as a criticism of someone who seemed to overemphasize their own uniqueness. Over time, its use morphed into a criticism of people who were seen as too sensitive or easily offended. In return, George Takai, yes, the Star Trek actor who is absolutely amazing on social media, said, the thing about snowflakes is this, they are beautiful and unique, but in large numbers become an unstoppable avalanche that will bury you. And this brings us to one of the things about snow that is so fascinating, that it contains both difference and sameness. Each snowflake is unique, but snow is all the same. A couple of quotes here, first from a book called Tower by Korean writer Bae Myung-hoon, in which he tells a fable about a white bear. The winds were calm that morning. Light snow descended almost vertically. Nothing else happened in those moments. A mundane time settled on the great earth. White Bear studied a snowflake that had landed on her forepaw. It had six arms. Another snowflake landed on her forepaw. Another six arms, six identical ones. Yet none of the snowflakes had identical arms to one another. White Bear stood still and waited for a long time. Dozens, hundreds of snowflakes fell endlessly on her paws. How much longer must she wait for the same snowflake to fall? She blinked and pondered. Why did every one of them have different shapes? 
Who made them? Why make them? Did they mean anything? Did each one have a different meaning? And then this from David Gutterson's Snow Falling on Cedars, bringing snow into the realm of human life. Snowfall obliterated the borders between the fields and made Kabuyo Miyamoto's long-cherished seven acres indistinguishable from the land that surrounded them. All human claims to the landscape were superseded, made null and void by the snow. The world was one world, and the notion that a man might kill another over some small patch of it did not make sense. It is this featurelessness which is the scary thing about the far north. Everything is reduced to flatness. Even we, precious snowflakes one and all, become homogenised behind our bulky winter coats, hats and gloves. We lose our features too. In this flat landscape we become the same. Only those who know can understand the story that the snow is telling through its drifts and dunes. Only those who know can tell you when the snow landed and what has happened to it since. Indigenous Arctic peoples have multiple words for snow, that's true, but those words tell stories that matter. If the snow is too cold, it gets grippy, making it hard to ski or sled across. Another day, the snow might form bridges over voids that you definitely don't want to fall into. Even snow novices will recognise the difference in sound between walking on freshly fallen snow compared to a couple of days later when it is thawed and refrozen. If you've skied at all, you'll know how it sounded going through fresh snow, the rich silence of it, compared to older snow that's been bashed down over ice, that dreaded scraping sound beneath your feet. The hush of fresh snow exists for a reason. Most of a fresh fall of snow on the ground is actually air between the snowflakes. That's what causes the sound when you step on it, the air compressing and squashing beneath your feet. Older snow that is refrozen is harder and more solid, so it reflects sound back at you. As Peter Hoag once wrote, reading snow is like listening to music. To describe what you've read is like explaining music in writing. The snow is disappearing now, in large part because of climate change. I've talked about this a bit in previous episodes and I won't dwell on it now. Rather a few thoughts about what it means culturally and some useful emotional vocabulary. Firstly, when we think of snow we have this split between people for whom it is disruptive and people for whom it is normal. It's not a binary thing but a continuum. There are people who live without snow and people who live with snow the whole year round. Your place on the world map will influence where on this continuum you sit, how accustomed you and your society are to snowfall, and therefore how much disruption you face when it comes. As we think about the snows disappearing, it's important to ask, who is being disrupted when it goes? What do we gain and what do we lose? I might lose the ability to go skiing in the French Alps. The village in the French Alps might lose its seasonal economy. The Inuit of Alaska and Greenland might lose their connections cultural, personal, spiritual, with their land. At a larger scale, without snow cover, the ground absorbs much more of the sun's energy, so snow cover controls the patterns of heating and cooling over the Earth's land surface more than anything else. Snow and frost have acted as our safety blankets against the release of large amounts of methane into the atmosphere. We have some things to be worried about. Panu Pikala, a Finnish writer on emotions attached to climate, identifies three interesting concepts. Snow anxiety is a form of anxiety when you don't know if snow will come this winter. Snow not coming causes you problems. The Finnish word is, and I apologise for my pronunciations, the Finnish word is lumiadistus. This anxiety is felt by many people in the north and in mountain territories whose patterns of life are influenced by the arrival of snow. 
winter sports and Nordic sports enthusiasts included. Winter grief is a grief for the loss of traditional winter conditions. The Finnish word is talvisuru. This is a longer term feeling, a sense of longing or loss, often associated with eco-nostalgia. In some cases, it can be quite an intense grief. Eco-nostalgia can lead to a melancholy and passive longing for the past. I wish it was how it used to be. Or an effort to protect that which remains. You could see snow storage and artificial snow machines as a way of trying to overcome or avoid winter grief. The third concept is Talvahaikis. This is based on a Finnish word for feeling both sad and grateful at the same time. You can think of it like a joyful sadness. A bit like the joy and then sadness that we touched upon related to Japanese cherry blossoms earlier. It's the feeling that something is changing or being lost, but at the same time a feeling of joy or gratitude for the things that remain. When I started writing this episode, it was meant to be a journey through some books, poems, TV, movies and so forth that featured snow. I thought it would be interesting and maybe a bit of fun. Who doesn't love playing in the snow? And here I am on page 10 of my notes, wondering what happens. This means I need to redress the balance, which means jokes. And not just any jokes, really bad jokes about snow. So here we go. What do you get when you cross a snowman with a vampire? Frostbite. How do you find Will Smith in the snow? You look for fresh prints. And last, but by no means least, why didn't Guns N' Roses turn up to the gig when it was snowing? Because Axel froze. Thank you for listening. You can find a transcript of this episode along with links to all sorts of background information and sources at skishootrepeat.podbean.com. All music for this episode and every episode of Ski Shoot Repeat is sourced from the YouTube audio library. You can follow us on Twitter at Ski Shoot Repeat. Um, please do get in touch with me to let me know what's right and what's wrong. This podcast is built more on love than on knowledge, so I expect to get fact-checked. Also, let me know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes. Uh, next week, as I mentioned, we'll see you return to top-level biathlon with the World Championships in Oberhof. So I am putting together a World Championship special preview, which will be all biathlon, including some stories of great races and champions from the past, what to expect from Oberhof, and my always bizarre, sometimes accurate set of predictions. Thank you for listening to Ski Shoot Repeat. I've been Lizzie Boyle.